0: Before we begin the final word for this week with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, a quick word about Woodstock Cricket Bats, the best cricket bats in the world. And because of their association with us or our association with them, Jeff, we can offer you 20% off the best bats in the world. The best Woodstock
1: in the world, not the music
0: festival, not the premix
1: bourbon, it's the best (laughs) cricket bats going around uh, the Tour de Force and the Airstream. One the number one and two best cricket bats in the world by esteemed judges, testing blind last year. No idea what bats they were using. They said, these are the bats for you. These are the best ones in the world. And... Much, much cheaper than a lot of the big-name bats from the big-name brands.
0: Well, they're cheaper to begin with, and then you apply the discount. So the maths on this, which I like to repeat because I think it's important, is that for a top-line bat in Australia these days, you're being set back the better part of 1200 Australian dollars. It's a lot of money. Well... If you extrapolate what the Airstream and the Tour de Force are worth in Aussie dollars, it comes up to about 700 bucks, so about 375 quid. 20% off that, which is what you get with offer code TFW20, and you're down to 560 bucks, less than half of the 1200 that you might pay when picking a bat up off the shelf for the brands that you know and love and what you see a lot of test players use in Oz, for example. Now, the difference here is that all of these bats are, are made with love, by hand, by John Newsome, who's the, the bat maker to the stars, including now to Josh De Silva, Jeff, the West Indian star who who made 100 in the first test match where he was using the Woodstock a couple of weeks ago. And there are a range of uh, players on the county circuit who are using them this year, who weren't using them last year, and there are many more coming as well.
1: There are more on the way. Stephen Finn uses one. Benny Howell, uh, Jack Taylor for Gloucestershire, Joe Leach for Worcestershire. Lots of uh, county players using the Woodstock stick, and uh, you can use it too with that Offer code TFW20 Get 20% off Why wouldn't you? You'll be foolish not to
0: Woodstockcricket.co.uk The code is TFW20 For the best spat in the world Get one today Dun dun dun
1: I had to go about it Write it out And find it myself and there's some stories I can tell you. Yeah. This is the final word Cricket podcast I'm Jeff Lemon The other guy is Adam Collins We are back Together at last we ran towards each other across a meadow full of flowers with our arms spread wide in slow motion while a string quartet played a stirring uh, quartet. Music. I don't know what they play in the background. Uh, it was it was beautiful. The the, the flowers were all pollinated. So uh, nobody had. Let a either.
0: thousand flowers bloom.
1: Let a thousand flowers bloom. And every thirty seconds, somebody in Queensland gets torn apart by a crocodile. All of that and more will be happening on the final word this week. Hello, Adam. Uh, it's nice to be back with you.
0: Hello. Yes. When you when you went through that intro, I was thinking of the chariots of fire slow motion, possibly mm-hmm. because uh, where I was for the Easter long weekend, or at least for Friday, Saturday and Sunday was Margate over in Kent and I had not been to Margate. I had some sense of it, uh, mostly because of the the Libertines having bought a hotel down there a few years ago and I knew it was a kind of an old-fashioned holiday spot. But such is its uh, position in, the, in, I guess, the the pecking order of coastal towns that Sam Mendes and Olivia Coleman were also there for Easter making a film uh, and using <laughs> um, the cinema there, they've uh, turned the facade into a cinema from 1981, 1982. I think that's when chariots of fire was released and all of the bunting around the bottom of the cinema is opening night uh, a big premiere of chariots of fire and all of the advertising <laughs> as well so um, that was a, a nice little uh an, a nice little part of the weekend looking at the stuff closely in there and uh great to get away uh, yeah, with the family in the sun and yeah, get some time away from work albeit briefly Chariots of Fire starring Derek
1: Pringle. Yes, uh, what exactly. A, what, a, what a time, what a moment. Um, it's, uh, it felt a little strange to miss the season opener, um, our, our seasons on the final word array. I mean, they're a sort of loose affair, but they're roughly, roughly contingent with the the start of the and the end of the northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere seasons. But we're in season twelve. You asked me to figure out how many episodes we've done. I, I don't know exactly because there is a bit of uh, bad accounting between some of the podcast hosts who have used over the years. But I think this roughly, I think this is about episode number four hundred and fifty-eight. Wow! If we include all the daily shows, yeah, you know, definitely. The, 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 The fifteen-minute jobbies, which are not as as time-consuming as as the others, but yeah, it's it's at least what what have we? Eighty-six story times, and maybe a hundred and fifty odd. Weekly episodes or thereabouts, so it's an awful lot of time spent podcasting. And even even stranger is that there are some people who have listened to all of it.
0: Yeah, that's right. As we've learnt on the uh, on the Discord fan chat page, there that there are some some of the some of you listening have listened to every episode we've ever made, and and we love you for it. That's probably a nerd pledge number there four five eight. Um, Mm. We will do some story time uh, later today, of course. But yeah, I I said to Daniel last week how many eps he thought we'd we'd recorded, and his calculation was somewhere in the six or seven hundred. So. Not quite that many but on the uh, trajectory we're on at the moment we'll be up to episode 500 at some point during the English summer.
1: Yeah well 501 we've got to get Lara that's the yes. uh, that's that's a big number in cricket terms um, in terms of listeners I wanted to tell you Adam that I um, when I went to the Shane Warren Memorial at the MCG as I was leaving I went with my dad the sort of mirroring I guess going going with him as a, a, a much younger person to, to watch cricket. Yeah. And, I, and I heard out of the crowd, uh, hey, hey, Jeff. And I, I said, yes. And, and a, a guy stands in front of me and he says, I'm sexy Ryan Thomas. <laughs> now, now if, you, if you're not familiar with this, there, there's the whole sexy Ryan Harris thing. And then we started getting correspondence from a patron called Ryan Thomas, who I addressed at one point as sexy Ryan Thomas, and he's taken it on. This is so he signs off all his emails in this way. But it was a beautiful moment of him announcing this to me and we both knew what he was talking about, but his mate who he was with and my dad both gave each of us a very curious look as to oh, what sure. is happening here with this very confident uh, outstretched handshake. Hello, I'm Sexy Ryan Thomas. Um, and, and not only was it SRT, the other mm-hmm. SRT, so we had a nice chat, but he followed up with, with a bit of correspondence, Adam, because he was, he was with a friend, Nick, who he introduced me to and you know we had a chat and, and all good. A few days later, Ryan sends through this message and he he says, you may be interested to know that my friend Nick has a a place in cricket history. And there's an article about this in which he's described as an affable trundler um, bowling very slow right arm mediums. Nick Gooden is this fella's name and playing for Yallorn against Latrobe in the central Gippsland competition a few years ago. He, He was having a bowl. He takes a wicket with the last ball of an over. And then he takes two more with the first two of his next over. Hat trick, right? Happy days. He's taken a hat trick. The other team score a two. Then there's a dot ball. And then he takes two more wickets to end the over. So he's got a hat trick and he's got four in an over. The very next over, he gets three more wickets in a row. So he's taken five in five balls after having taken a hat trick. He's taken a hat trick and a triple hat trick because, yes, that's what it is. Because five in a row is it contains three individual sequences of three. He's taken eight wickets in ten balls, and he is, as far as we know, the only listed player in any match to take a hat trick and a triple hat trick in the same innings.
0: Wow, Nick Gooden. Okay, uh, <laughs> I, I, have you? So you found news reports to uh, to yeah, corroborate this,
1: to back this up. Yep, this is this is the real deal. Um, wow. So so take that Latrobe. You know, the problem with La Trobe is they always try to walk it in.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, have that. Well bowled. Uh, sexy Ryan Thomas as well for getting in touch and uh, for relaying that. Good to know. Now, what else is going on? Well, uh, we have to thank Barat and Daniel for stepping in while we were away taking. Uh, Well, you you missed the the weekly shows and I missed the weekend shows. That's how it worked out in the end. And between times, Daniel and I did a a story time too. So we had some excellent super subs. And this week, I should also say the show is going to be broken into two. So Jeff and I will have our usual conversation here. A lot went down this week. We've had sackings, Mm. we've had appointments, we've had... Um, We've had retirements, we've had the works. So that will all be coming out whenever you're hearing it. And then once the embargo lifts on the new Wisdom Cricketers Almanac, which I think it's half past 10 Wednesday night UK time, we'll then publish part two, which is my conversation with Lawrence Booth, the editor of the Almanac edition number 159. So uh, that's a pretty weighty chat in its own right, probably about an hour, hour and a bit. So part one, Jeff and me, part two, uh, Lawrence and me and as it's been over the last two weeks. Daniel and Brad have stepped in and, and we had a good time.
1: Uh, I should also say we're going to have a little Melbourne meet-up of some of the listeners. Uh, so Rosie Piper is one of our uh, avid listeners and she's doing a comedy festival show at the moment. So I'm going on Friday night, this coming Friday night, the whatever it is of April. It's the 19th, Tuesday the 19th, so three days after that, 20 second, yes, we know how to do numbers. That's on Friday evening, sort of six o'clock-ish or something, and, and a few listeners of the show are going to come along and, and see the show, and then we might decamp to the pub or something like nice. that. So if uh, anyone's listening in and wants to come and meet us at Rosie's show, please do um, fill up the audience, and, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll go and discuss it afterwards.
0: Well, we're doing the same thing on Thursday at the Oval for the London final word contingent, so we're going to be, uh, well, we haven't quite worked out where and when specifically the That's all on the Discord and being established. But Surrey are playing Somerset. Day one's at the Oval. I'm there anyway doing some other work. So we thought, what better opportunity to have an early season beer than that. So I think we'll probably go to the Beehive. But yeah, just get in touch if you want to join us for a drink on Thursday in London or or in uh, Melbourne on Friday. That works out well.
1: So we had uh, Norcross and Barrett being our super subs. Um, Also the first COVID substitutes we used in Test Cricket. During the last week, during the South Africa series, so a little, little milestone moment there, and Kayazondo getting a, a test debut, and then getting to play for about two hours afterwards because Bangladesh got wrapped up so quickly, um, and Ravichandran Ashwin becoming the first tactical retirement in a top level IPL game when he was he was going all right he'd made 28 of 23 I think but he decided he wasn't lining them up properly and retired himself out um, allowing Rian Parag to come in and smack a couple of boundaries um, the, that ended up being quite decisive in the match so more power to Ashwin.
0: Yeah and I was pleasantly surprised Jeff that we received a pretty warm response to our conversation about this last week Norcross has a, a strong view uh, that what Ashwin did was spot on and we don't need to tweak the laws at all and yeah I, I kind of thought you might get some pelters for that but nope People seem like they are persuaded that uh, that what Ashwin did is not only good and proper, but that the laws as they are are fine and we don't need to get too fancy on this, that um, this works. And, yeah, fair enough, I reckon.
1: And I, I heard your chat with Daniel about the Warren Memorial, which I, I thought he summarised things really nicely. Um, a last little addition to that, there was a, a story that Chris Unwin, one of our listeners, sent in. And, and I loved this just for the niche element where he, he said, I won a competition when I was 11, through Wisdom Cricket Monthly, one of those things where you send in an answer on a postcard. And I got sent to Australia for four weeks involving three weeks off school. Now, just dream start to begin with. Imagine, like, I've never met anyone who's won one of these competitions. (laughs) You know, 25 words or less, tell us why you want to go to see an Ashes Test. I I knew a guy in
0: 1995 who, I don't remember which Pearl Jam album it was, but whichever one it was, I guess it was the peak of their powers, wasn't it, around their mid-90s. And it, it was like, if you submitted uh, an application based on the the CD you had bought to proof of purchase or whatever you could win a trip to see Pearl Jam play in America and so he did so that's the only other time I've seen anything like that you're spot on though that's like total dream sequence stuff being sent to Australia to watch cricket when you're a school kid of 11 years old I mean that doesn't get any better and three weeks off school into the bargain yeah, and getting yeah. out of winter and
1: being sent to summer. So uh, so Chris says, I was at the Triangular Series final in 1999. And so, during the memorial, NASA Hussain started telling a story about that game. And Chris oh, says, yeah, yeah. I, I sent a message to my mum that NASA was talking about one of the games that I attended with my dad at the SCG. And she replied, yes, and you sent us a postcard from there and you got Shane Warne to sign it. <laughs> so, Chris had completely forgotten this, but uh, but he, he did he did have that little link back to that day and he won the competition when he was 11. So,
0: well done. Fantastic. And Chris, being from Lancashire originally, there's a, I suppose there's a decent chance. So at least one of his clan were at a at that test match at Old Trafford in 1993, linking back to Warren as well. On to the news of the
1: week, uh, we we must start. I'm afraid, um, although I'm sure it has been absolutely talked to death by everybody else in our line of work, uh, Joe Root resigning as England Test captain. It it is not surprising at all, but it also was kind of surprising given how resistant he'd been to to doing that. It really did seem like. The same England setup might just drag on, but I think I think after some time at home, he's basically <laughs> realised that, that he's too buggered and he he doesn't want to keep being in the firing line.
0: Yeah, I'm just so glad, I'm so happy for him that he's been able to arrive at this decision himself. Look, who knows what external pressure might have been at play, but yeah, we got the press release on yeah, on by who. It's nobody to apply it. That's true. I do wonder whether he might have known that Rob Key was taking over on Sunday. So there's kind of the Good Friday resignation from Root and the Easter Sunday uh, resurrection (laughs) via Rob Key to the (laughs) the director of cricket job for the men's team. And yeah, maybe he he sniffed the breeze and realised that change was a coming and and rob is uh, on the record as being a supporter of ben stokes taking over as captain so the extent to which that'll influence what they do on that front time will tell i suppose now we should say from the front of the conversation you know work with rob uh, you know and and, and have a, 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 a an affection for him and wish him very very well you know so that's not to say we won't be objective in our analysis of what he does in the new job it'll We'll provide a bit of distance there, I'm sure. But, yeah, my my starting point is great news that a proper cricket person who loves the game dearly, who thinks deeply about it, who is clearly passionate about getting England to where they need to be and where they should be based on their investment in the game, it strikes me on all those fronts as a a great opportunity for a new era for English cricket. Now, the other side of that, um, the criticism will be that that key doesn't have that kind of managerial experience or looking after teams in quite the same way or experience even out of the game uh, that he comes to this as a bit of a clean skin that might be a good thing that might be a bad thing time will tell but it's definitely a bold decision look the easy thing to do uh, would have been to have gone for someone who who had done the behind the scenes stuff in, in county land or indeed gone abroad and picked someone out from a from another country to give English cricket a shake-up, but they, they've gone, yeah, to a – they've gone in a different direction to somebody who's been following the game incredibly closely but from the media side rather than the administration side. Yeah, I, I can't decide
1: how I feel about that. Like, it, it's – you can, you can see it as bold and, and in a way it is. It, it, it's, it's quite brave and there has been this um, Andrew Strauss history of, of interesting selections, I, I thought. He, him installing Ed Smith as, as the selector when he did was an inspired decision, and um, and they probably shouldn't have knocked him off when they did. But um, it's this one I'm not so sure. It, it does it does feel more like who's familiar, who's you know, whose face do we know, whose name do we know, um, who's who's someone who's who's been around, and it it doesn't it doesn't seem particularly inventive, you know, in terms of finding like really looking broadly, there's a bit of a Cricket Australia feel to it, you know, who's, who's nearby and, and can do the job. And, yes, you know, Rob Key's captained a county side and played lots of county cricket and, and then sat in the commentary box. So what what kind of qualifications does he have to be able to, to take on such a wide-ranging job when there are so many moving parts? I mean, being the director of men's cricket means having a lot of input into – the full structure of the domestic game in England with all of the commercial ramifications with the player workload and overload ramifications with the scheduling ramifications. And someone who's a recent ex player will have opinions on all of that, but that doesn't, necessarily mean they're the right person to make the decisions about how it should all go rather than just being someone with some input into um helping make those decisions
0: yeah look i I take your point like he's sharp and he's seen everything i I think it's quite admirable the way that he's worked his way into that skybox by the way like usually to be a a, an observer of test cricket for one of the big television networks you need to have played like 100 test matches and have that kind of Mm. um, that glittering career which he didn't have and like we've talked recently jeff about sometimes from an Australian perspective, they've gone to selectors who didn't have um, luck at the selection table. Um, Tony mm. Dottomade and George Bailey uh, most recently, for example. Jamie Cox before that. Trevor uh, Years Hones. ago, Trevor Hones and others. So they've thought that the best place to look at the selection table is people who perhaps got, got the rough end of the stick when they were playing. The same might be here for Key, that he didn't have the, the kind of England career which would guarantee that he'd have a, a wonderful Post-playing career, be it as a commentator or an administrator, but he's now been able to achieve that. Like he's one of the most sought-after voices in the game on TV commentary. As recently as Pakistan, when he worked with us on SEN and was effectively leading that TV broadcast with Mike um as a foreign voice, he wasn't from the sort of the the Pakistan team or the Australian team, but such as the esteem that he's held in, he's he's given that gong. So I'm, I'm sure that would have all contributed to this. He'll be a player's player a bit as well, too. Like, he clearly is mates with the players. He, he understands what makes them tick. As Nasser Hussain pointed out on Sky yesterday when, when talking about the appointment, the, the, the next step will be, how does he go at having tough conversations with his mates who play for England? Uh-huh. That, that's, a, that's an extra degree of difficulty, but... I appreciate that if you're Rob Key and this comes out of the blue for you, which it did, by the way. He wasn't seeking this job. They came to him. His uh, comments in the press release ring true that you might get one opportunity in life to do something like this. Uh, and why would you give it up? Like Even though it probably means, I don't know, maybe even a pay cut, but why would you give up the, the one chance you would get to have your hand at the hand at the lever of power in English cricket, which obviously means so much to him? I guess it's also a money where your mouth is situation, yeah. you know, it's it's
1: relatively easy to sit there and have opinions about everything and say, well, they should do this and they should do that. Uh, it's a very different thing to actually have to do it because everybody making a pronouncement, including us, saying, well, they should do X, Y, or Z, doesn't have to actually factor in all of the knock-on effects that that decision has, um, the... The, the consequences that flow from it, the things that have to be adjusted so that could be put in place. The detail of it doesn't have to matter when you say, well, they should just play more first-class cricket in July or whatever it is. There, there are always so many other moving parts around it. So he will now have to tackle all of those things. He won't just be able to have the opinions. He'll have to find ways to to put them into place. And look, I suppose he's right that it's rare to get the opportunity to have a crack. It also seems like a chalice. I mean, it it feels like the kind of job you go into get smashed around by everybody else in the media for three or four years and exit with your tail between your legs as uh, the previous occupant has done. You know, I mean, Ashley Giles does not leave with reputation enhanced, even though he made a lot of good moves earlier in his tenure and and was getting lots of credit for it. He ends up being judged by the exit and, you know, people do recover from these things to a point,
0: but they, they carry the bruising from them. So, I mean... I think he's on a bit of a hiding to nothing, really. Yeah, the scrutiny will be relentless, right? And he and he knows that. He, he gets... He's been around long enough to know the ecosystem and the fact that, you know, his mates will have to be... And by mates, I mean, like, everybody in the media. Everyone's pally with Keezy, right? We... Will be critical of what he's doing. We will disagree on lots of things, and indeed, Mm. I mean, I don't agree with his position on Stokes being captain, for example. Respectfully disagree, but that'll be an early one if he does go up and and appoint Stokes and and is part of the appointment of Stokes as Test captain. I think that would be an error, but that's okay. Like it's his prerogative to make big calls now in this new role. He has a view around. I I think that's been
1: that one. Just feels like a pub decision, you know. It feels like, oh yeah, and
0: Stokes—he's really
1: good yeah pop him in as
0: captain oh, like it doesn't, uh, it uh, doesn't I, I, I wouldn't yeah I, I wouldn't quite go that far I think that there is a view that there's only one player other than Joe Root who's who's a who's a lock to be in the test 11 against yeah, well, New true. Zealand and as a result it's a bit of deductive reasoning around Stokes it's like right it's it's not the perfect fit but if he's the only guy who's going to be there with any meaningful experience who has captain England must be remembered then it, it stands to reason that he'd be given the next opportunity my response to that which Daniel and I spoke of last week is one he's already under the pump big time on so many different levels as a player you know every format the all-rounder in the team Uh, there of course is the baggage that he carries from from 2017 and we can disregard that if we want but you know people who aren't involved in the nitty-gritty of cricket day-to-day know a few things about Ben Stokes and one of them is the embargo nightclub and Hmm. the other point is that Stokes can be super loose, and that can be adorable sometimes. But it's not always adorable, and some of that comes out on social media. and the, And the standard you'll be judged against as England captain is different to when you're a member of the ranks. So I think there are, yeah, there are some, there are some headwinds there. And yeah, our view that we've expressed before about maybe Stuart Broad doing it in a caretaker capacity has got a bit more of an airing in recent times, and maybe that's where they land. But yeah, my my sense is that. That it does go to Stokes, given Rob Key's now in this position. The other point, I think this might be lost upon a few people in, in county land, I'm not sure, but Rob is uh, adamant there's too much county cricket played. And this is before it was fashionable to talk about three divisions of six and playing 10 games, which is a, a, a hot talking point over here right now. Rob's been saying this for years, and he's saying that as someone who was on the circuit for nearly two decades. Now, again, I disagree with him on that. I think that, you know, if you had a 10 game season and in England, invariably you lose games to rain. You know, mm-hmm. it's just the way it is with the climate over here and with um, availability as it is around the country with international competing interests and all the rest of it. You're not getting a lot of bang for your buck for 10 games. I think 14's fine. It used to be 16 until a few years ago. But, yeah, the fact that Rob is, is strong about this and he's going to be part of Andrew Strauss's... Uh, um, I don't know, what, is, is it a working group they're going through at the moment on, on overhauling <laughs> English cricket, the sort of thing you get after a, a losing Ashes series, you know, they're, they're always reviewing the domestic game. This could be a decision that's taken quite soon about how they move forward with county cricket, and he'll have the view that they should land with, you know, roughly 10 games per season, which will piss off a lot of people. Now, whether the counties vote for that uh, at board levels, a, a very different thing. The, the, I think a, a dozen counties would need to agree to that for it to happen. I I doubt that'll that'll come to fruition, but yeah, it's a very interesting appointment at a very interesting time, given they don't have a coach, they don't have a captain, they don't have a chairman. Not that Rob Key will be involved in picking who the chair is, but that's a, an important mm. part of all of this. And the, and the chief executive, Tom Harrison, is is on the way out. So... Yeah, as soon as he
1: picks up his bonus, once he gets his two point one million, yeah, sooner, yeah. well, he's
0: cut of the two point one million. Presumably, he goes sooner rather than later. So, yeah, the the route decision, Jeff, that he's made. I mean, again, we we're backing over old territory a little bit, but more wins than any England captain, but more losses than any England captain. And Lawrence <laughs> and I went through this in, yeah. in our chat about the Almanac this year too. It's uh, you know, it's uh, it's striking that those two milestones came up within about three months of each other, and that he was able to make all of those runs last year when England were above. Case.
1: Well, I mean, it was it, it it was a pathetic use of statology by by the ECB, and I think it just reflected everything about the ECB that okay, you you know, we've got to talk him up now that he's retiring. Yes, he captained more tests than ink, the, for England than anybody. That's because they play about seventeen a year, and he was the only player in the team who could have done the job, as as you say, for the last five years or so. So, yes, good for him for doing that. You know, but. <laughs> that that sort of creative accounting oh he captained more wins than anyone else yes he did and he also lost more so what's the like that's just that's just by virtue of bulk of numbers by that point so it it felt very ecb it was it was the hollowness uh it was all about the message not about the substance you know we have to come up with something nice to say because he's on the way out
0: yeah and he did captain loads of test cricket i'm i'm Plucking a stat here from the almanac, and I think I'll try and adjust it in my head. I think he captained sixty-four Test matches in fifty-six months in the job. I mean, that's yeah. a lot of cricket. I mean, especially when you consider the rigors of the pandemic and, and bubbles and and the other mm. challenges since since February twenty twenty. So, it's been a rough ride. It's been a roller coaster. I went back and read something that I wrote when Joe became captain in. Uh, I, I guess he formally became captain in January twenty seventeen, but he had a bit of time before his first test uh, in the job that was uh, against South Africa in in the June of that year, in I think the April we got invited up to his primary school and I remember sort of asking him a series of questions about the the postcards that were on the wall about Syrian refugees and it was a really interesting school Uh, and I just was interested in Joe's perspective on these matters and about empathy more generally and he spoke eloquently around that about how he wanted to see himself as a captain who people could could trust and who could respect and I think that that will be how he leaves the job that his colleagues and you can see this from the social media posts they put up after senior teammates like Stuart Broad and James Anderson who obviously would love to have played in a more successful era under Joe but he hasn't lost anything as a human being as part of the process he might be exhausted but people still see him as the as the same commendable man when he went into the job and and he's leaving it with his reputation enhanced on that front which easily could have gone the other way you can see a bloke being, you know, uh, going through the ringer as captain and coming out a, a fairly disgruntled, broken dude, but I, I don't think that is the case with Joe. Yeah, that that is interesting. That
1: he's he he seems like, I mean, he and Kane Williamson are the most well-rounded and balanced of the super high achievers mm. in in Test cricket. You know, the ones the ones who've managed to hit the standards they've hit without sort of having to have such a crazy focus on it that they forget how to be people um, at the same time. So I think he'll go out. Um, as, a, as someone who's Very respected as a human being And uh, a lot less so as a tactician And, and a, a thinker um, uh, He's, you know, someone who uh, Like you said didn't, didn't have a hugely successful Era in, in a lot of ways But also made made a lot of mistakes that, that Made that harder, even though he wasn't always Starting with um, the biggest advantage I suppose.
0: Yeah, made a lot of runs, made a lot of Mistakes, I think it's a, a nice way of summing it up mm-hmm. In terms of doors closing this week there uh, One shut for an England great Shrubsole, who retired uh, from the international game at age 30. Jeff. we expected this after the World Cup. She was uh, quite emotional both before and after the World Cup final, which England mm. lost to Australia a couple of weeks ago. But yes, she she had a long career for England. So I think with women's cricket, sometimes we're like, hang on, 30. But you've got to remember, she started when she was 16. That's a very, very long time to be an international cricketer. And yeah, I think it, it stands to reason that that she has almost sniffed the breeze a little bit on this one and and realised that, in her own words, the game's passed her by just a little bit uh, and it's the right time for her to um, go back to being a domestic cricketer and to celebrate her achievements as a a two-time World Cup winner who did so much for that team for such a long stretch of time
1: you talked about it last week in terms of you know what what does england's setup look like when they go into a, a 50 over world cup in 3 years time is it still brunt and traps all that sort of situation and yeah her her comment was telling that that the game's moved past her. She has struggled for fitness, particularly in the last year or so, um, looked like she was struggling to keep up with the demands of the game at times, rallied towards the back end of that World Cup, bowled really well in the final, um, but there was that sense that she was sort of struggling to, to keep up to the standard required, um, and which in, in some ways it, it, it was sort of symbolic. I suppose that her obviously her high point will always be the 2017 World Cup final, the six for that she took, the way she carried England to victory that day. Um, it seems symbolic that the end of, of of the World Cup final a couple of weeks ago was was her tamely getting out with the bat when I mean actually there was still the slightest glint of a chance at that point because. Natalie Siver was still there, absolutely flying, you know playing one of the most ridiculous sort of counter attacking single handed innings and she really needed support. she needed Chubsol to hang in there, and shrububsol tries to clear mid off and and holds out and I remember being really disappointed with that shot when it happened you know it seemed it seemed like someone who didn 't have the faith that that it could keep going or was too tired to. Um, to play the game properly. It was a tired sort of decision to play that shot in the circumstances. So there was something something about that that felt like an end when it happened, and and that's been confirmed.
0: Yeah, and look, as Daniel and I spoke about, it will create space for the next generation of England cricketers coming through uh, who been given a a wonderful platform through the hundred last year for example to play on television at test venues under what I would describe as kind of like quasi-international pressure well can they make the next step up in the next three years who will be the one that grasps that opportunity I wonder whether it might actually be Freya Davies who has been in and around this England squad for going on four years now limited opportunities um, not always been supported at the selection table but Anya herself said Last year, when they were preparing for one of the one days against India, that, that she thought that the long term attack leader would be Freya Davies. Now, this could be her opportunity. She only got one bite of the cherry during the World Cup and bowled really, really well uh, against Bangladesh. But yeah, you'd you, you think that if Shrubsol has pulled out, Brunt might go on. I, I, I sense that they won't do the double swap out. So yeah, Izzy Wong's the other who bowls with that extra yard of pace, uh, bowled really well in the, in the big mm. bash that where she was playing for the Thunder and, and also for the the Phoenix in the hundreds and and, and that just that, that the very fact that there is that semi-pro level beneath it now which wasn't the case a couple of years ago it was the the KSL for six weeks sure but now it's the Charlotte Edwards Cup and the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy so there will be the chance for the next superstar to emerge whereas that that might have been tough I think Jeff even as far back as 2017 we were both writing and saying on the podcast that England were were lacking another match winning seamer. well they're they're going to have their hand forced now because they won't have your shrub soil uh, down the other end.
1: Yeah, and and they'll need you know they, they they need more than one. Obviously, you can't you can't just be relying on one person to fill that breach with injuries and all of the rest of it. Uh, I think, as you say, Brunt will go on a little longer, but I I think time may be running out pretty quickly. For her as well, she's a she. She strikes me as a sort of a player who's who's running more on reputation than reality these days. She's, I mean, England have a delusion when it comes to Catherine Brunt. They think that she's a number seven with the bat, which she's never been. You know, occasionally chips in, but but sort of can't can't consistently do that job. But she also gets talked about. Like I, I noticed this with every every England commentator who used to play with her. They still talk about her as a speed demon and this fast and threatening bowler. When most of the time she's bowling back of the hand slower balls at about seventy k's an hour in in one day cricket these days. I mean you don't you don't see the player she was is not the player she is. And yeah, she's clever and she's got variations and smarts. But she's also trying to adapt her game on the run to stay relevant. And and in some ways that can work. But it. it I'm not convinced by it. I think, I think I think the idea of her is more compelling than the reality of her as a player at the moment.
0: Yeah, look, I, I think she's still England's best option, but um, you're right in saying she's a different prospect now. To, even when we started covering women's cricket, closely uh, when she was head and shoulders above the rest of the world in terms of pace that that's clearly not, not the case anymore. Uh, by the way, Shrubsold by numbers finishes with 209 international wickets, uh, including 101 in T20s, the most for England at an average of 15.6 and an economy rate of 6 in in T20s. As I said, she was a, a world champion twice. She's an MBE as well for what she achieved in that 2017 World Cup, which also made her the first woman featured on the cover of the Wisden Almanac in, in 2018 and last but certainly not least uh, one of the 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 best people in cricket and only wish her well in her post-playing career hopefully we can get her on the show actually I've tried a couple of times Mm. and haven't quite gotten it over the line I I know she's um she's open to doing it so maybe we'll try and do like an exit interview with Anya Trubsoll now that she's finished playing for England and yeah looking forward to still watching her do her thing swinging the ball uh, around corners in in the hundred and in domestic cricket this year uh, Mignon
1: Dupree has sorta of half retired, bit of an Afridi retirement, um from she's retired from ODIs and tests, even though they're going to play a test this year after years of not having played yeah. a test. I mean, that seems like an odd decision. Like do do that one in a few months, buddy. But she's going to keep playing T20s um, I guess through until the next T20 World Cup or whatever it is but she has decided to to call time most notably in 50 over cricket a format where she made 3,760 runs played 154 times for South Africa and she'll still be going around on the domestic uh, freelancer circuit and all the rest of it.
0: Yeah kind of similar to Shrub Solon that she played for 15 years so you kind of get it that when you start so young and she was captain for 5 years in her early 20s you, you kind of Knackered by that age, aren't you? you, you mm. I totally get and respect why she'd be looking to lessen her workload, even if it does mean that she won't get to add to her one Test match. Which, by the way, brought her a, a century on debut. She's in that quite small club of women who've made a hundred mm. on, on Test debut. Uh, that was against India in 2014 when she was captain as well. So uh, the end of her long-form career. But as you say, I'm sure we'll see Mignon Dupreea featuring in the uh, T20 comps around the world, and yes, presumably through till the next T20 World Cup in. Gosh, it's next year, isn't it, Jeff? Um, it, 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 these, these World Cups um, come around quite quickly in the T20 format. I think it's in South Africa next March or something like that.
1: Yeah, there's one. Well, there's there's, there's an ICC event every year now by design. Yeah. So we're never not playing an ICC event, <laughs> basically. Um, what else have we got? Andrew McDonald got the Australian yeah. coaching job. i uh, f- Could have knocked me down with a feather. (laughs) A real left field candidate. It's lucky that, again, Cricket Australia um, engaged a global recruitment firm (laughs) to do a worldwide search for the best candidate and then gave the job to the guy who was already the interim person doing the job, much like they had the worldwide search uh, to find a coach before they appointed Justin Langer, Uh, the worldwide search to appoint a CEO before they appointed Kevin Roberts, who was the 2IC to James Sutherland, and then the worldwide search for a CEO before they gave it to Nick Hockley, who'd been doing the job on an interim basis for 12 months before they finally gave him a full-time gig. This organisation, I cannot get my head around the way they do things. Like this farce, this pretense that we're searching everywhere for the new candidate when we've already given him the job effectively. Like what is it for? Why don't say you don't have any money when you're paying recruitment firms to spend three <laughs> months three months since Justin Langer got out of the got out of the job and the space opened up. Three months to decide to give it to the second in-command coach who you'd already installed as an interim coach. Yeah, Andrew. Jesus
0: Christ. Andrew McDonald, Mr. Worldwide, suddenly. Yeah. Um, who's that pit bull? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. quite. Um, yeah, a bit different. Yeah, a bit different. A little bit. Uh, yeah, I, I think they could have saved their cash on this one because it was Andrew McDonald every day of the week. I mean, and it had to be. It had to be, especially after what happened in Pakistan. They weren't to know how well it would have gone there, I suppose, when they initiated that process. So... I'll give them a little bit of leeway on that front. But, I mean, it was pretty clear from the reporting at the time and, and the feedback that we were getting via the Australian team through the media um, that they wanted McDonald. So, yeah, they, they probably were in a strong position, given he already worked for the organisation, to have gone down that path. Of note, it's a four-year deal and it's for red ball and white ball. I don't think we expected the latter. I thought they might go, you know, red ball coach, white ball coach. But he's got both, as Justin Langer did. Four-year deal, which is the um, the length of time that Langer also had. Before Langer, no one was getting four-year deals. So they're, they're giving him a lot of lead time. Mm. That that might be to do with um, them wanting to, to pair up McDonald with Cummins to just be the leadership axis week in, week out across the formats. I know that Finch has got the white ball teams, but the fact that Cummins is in the white ball teams and – and I suppose there's there's more pressure on a coach for what they achieve at test level, isn't there? So reigning world champions in T20 cricket, he'll get to uh, oversee that team when they try to defend their title on home soil in, in November. So yeah, pretty good time to be taking over Australian cricket for Andrew McDonald. He's, he's a sound guy, he's a smart dude. I spent a day with him or half a day with him at Grace Road back when he took over Leicester in 2016. And kind of, I was quite fascinated in, in, the, in the Leicestershire club at the time. They'd gone without a victory for about two and a half years. And McDonald, who'd played a little bit there earlier in his career, I mean, by the age of 34, he was a senior county coach. There's a little factoid that does the rounds that McDonald had all of his coaching badges before he played test cricket. So he knew a long way out what he wanted to do, which was to be a high profile coach. And yeah, the experience with Leicestershire through the IPL, the Australian assistant, That bond he's clearly got with Pat Cummins He he was the overwhelming choice So yeah, I reckon they could have saved a buck or two (laughs)
1: <laughs> um, I remember being very invested in his uh, brief Test career when it happened. I really wanted. I was like, "Yes, this this unglamorous, unfashionable sort of seeming dibbly dobbler kind of all rounder." And and he he produced a, a couple of handy efforts for Australia. In sure, the, did the couple of matches that he played. You know, bowled well, made a, a few useful runs on occasion. I I thought it sort of fitted. I saw I saw them put up this like alleged highlights clip on. Um, on social media that was basically just a clip of him getting Jacques juxt- Callous, uh, with a with a court in bold that almost touched the ground and the highlights clip was just two and a half minutes of DRS checking whether he'd taken a clean catch or not. I was like, it it sort of made sense that that was the best that they could find was, um, you know, was this contentious Court and bold decision because that reflected his his workmanlike character as a player.
0: Yeah, he he was a very, very good cricketer. Unlucky not to play more tests. uh, He he should have played in the 09 Ashes series because he was part of that 3-0 win in South Africa earlier in, in 2009 and, and the option was there for them to play him as almost like the spinner he, he could have when they lost faith in Horrocks, they could have turned to McDonald but anyway that's mm-hmm. uh that's all in the rear vision mirror now and yeah four test matches but yeah won the Sheffield Shield a number of times with Victoria and had county success and yeah that 1-0 victory in Pakistan would have been mm-hmm. the last confirmation they needed I suppose as decision makers that he's got a good thing going on there with Pat Cummins and yeah, best of luck to them for you know, what I expect will be a, a long time as coach and captain. I mean, they're not going to make any sharp movements now, are they? They've, they've picked their horse with Pat Cummins and now having signed up a coach for four years, we're going to hear a lot from those two leaders of the Australian men's team.
1: And uh, I suppose one thing about taking a while to appoint the coach was they basically gave him a free hit um, in Pakistan. So he, he didn't go mm. into that series with the pressure of having been appointed the new coach and you've got this tough assignment first yeah. up. Yeah. He sort of got, got a, a free hit at that. He he got the win. And, and so if there was if there had been any doubt about appointing him, because Trevor Bayliss was a pretty strong candidate for a while there. He was being very heavily talked up by um, New South Wales media anyway as, as being the the likely prospect. But if there had been any doubt about McDonald uh, winning a test series in Pakistan, sorted that out.
0: Yeah, I wonder whether Bayliss might end up being part of the World Cup plans for later in the year at home and also that McDonald has built it into his contract according to the reports that he'll be able to sit out for like white ball series where they where they can put it and I know they've done this before of course but where he can give the team away to others and whether maybe Bayless might become like that senior assistant when the mm. white ball team is, is turning out around the country World Cup around the corner so I wouldn't completely rule out Bayless from being quite involved in in the next stage yeah, I think that'd be silly not to try to get him involved in as some sort of
1: consultant or even just yeah. like a sort of cool Dad, who can just hang around in the change room and just just make everyone feel feel at home, you know that seems to be his vibe. Just just wear a big daggy, floppy, brimmed hat and be nice to everybody. And what do you know, you know, you know oh, don't worry about it. If you get out, don't worry, have another go. You know, that's pretty much the Trevor Bayless model. So so hopefully he can do something like that. I have not been paying a lot of attention to English county cricket because I, I rarely do, but I did notice some things that were happening during the week. There were some strong. Some strong talking points, some records set, some near records uh, as something very close to a perfect game in a batting sense that almost took place, an extremely close result in uh, in in one of the games, a one wicket result there that everybody being very excited, so uh, why don 't you walk me through? The CC.
0: Yeah, I will. So I won't do what um, Daniel and I did last week and spend half an hour talking about it. That was, um, yeah, as I said, it was it was a special treat for our England fans to start the season. But we'll, we'll try and break it down. I'll, I'll try and basically... It was basically a special treat for you two because
1: I wasn't on the show to be like,
0: come on, hurry it up. No, no, it, it was worth it. It was worth going through the, the games that were played last week to start the year. But we'll, I'll probably thieve... Um, the Gary Naylor um, uh, model here of picking six talking points each weekend or something like that. But yeah, you're right. The um, joy
1: of six, was uh, was that was a big thing on the Guardian yeah. for, for ages, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, that's
0: right. So it was, has joy of six energy. Gary puts mm. it on his blog and then reproduces it on the Guardian. So always a good read, but let's get to the cricket, shall we? It's been a good start to Division One in that no team has won two from two. Only Somerset have lost both games. And speaking of Somerset, Jeff, you talked about the, the, the win by one wicket. That was ever so close to a tie in that Essex were chasing 84 and they, were, they lost their ninth wicket when scores were level and Craig Overton, who took 13 wickets for the match, had three opportunities to bowl it at, at the number 11. Now, you know, you'd almost say at that stage it's a 50-50 whether they get the runs or, or the uh, the somerset seamer. Mm. Gets the final wicket to tie it uh, and become the 68th tied match in the history of first-class cricket. But it wasn't to be. And But there was nearly a run-out too. It was a quick single, scampered through. It was nearly like the Joe Solomon scene, side-on, you can't quite see where the run-out comes from in the tied test match, but you see limbs everywhere. It was close to um, having that repeated. But not to be. Uh, Renshaw playing for Somerset with Siddle this year, Jeff. So Matt Renshaw played his first game and made uh, seven in the first innings and 45 in the second. Peter Siddle... Took five wickets against his old club, but um, yes, um, the fact that it was ever so close to a tie, that that gets the juices flowing. Everybody seemed very, very excited about that one. I was uh, following the Ben Compton
1: story, yes. who carried his bat in the first innings um, and then was the last man out in the second innings, having made 100 in both digs, um, it would have been the seventh time ever that a player had carried the bat in both innings of a first class game and it ended up being one wicket short of that. So, so close to a record, but it was the record for the longest innings ever batted in a championship match, like the most minutes batted in a, in a county game ever, uh, 600 and something that he batted across the course of the match, um, it, it, an extraordinary performance um by Ben Compton.
0: Yeah, I think it ended up being in excess of nine hundred minutes across the two innings, which um, outstripped Hasiba Mead's effort last year when he made twin tons to get himself back in the frame. And yeah, I like the story of this Ben Compton. He's effectively a journeyman. He's played second eleven cricket at a couple of clubs, played a little bit of first class at knotts and now as a twenty eight year old arrives at Canterbury. His grandfather, you know, is the is the great Dennis Compton and his cousin's Nick Compton. So he's got it in the blood, I suppose. But um yeah 104 not out in the first innings and and came ever so close to to completing the job daniel norcross was very excited um on social media when he was uh, he went beyond 100 he had jackson bird for company who made 17 not out they put on 54 for the last wicket and then he was sawn off too it was a, a leg before decision that watching it back it could have easily gone the other way on, on the basis of height but yeah missed out on on becoming as you say the seventh man to carry their bat in both innings and i think it yeah the second to have done so while making a hundred in both innings as well ah uh, not to be
1: Big runs for a few players. Marcus Harris has been racking up runs. Uh, Your favourite, Shahn Masood, the Pakistan sometime international. Made a double hundred as well, and uh, and a big hundred for James Bracey who had that horrible little uh, dabble with Test cricket in in the last English summer. He made 177, so he's he's going along okay. Yorkshire won that game. David Milan made some runs as well to sort of sort of keep his his name in the conversation, I suppose, um, even though he he didn't go so well in the the more seeming conditions in Australia.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. So Marcus Harris, no contract for Australia. He's moved clubs from Leicester to Gloucestershire um, to stay in Division One. So that's fair enough, but yeah, Bracy made a hundred last week too, Jeff. So he's spoken in quite a candid way about his England experience last summer, and you know he's obviously better than the cricketer we saw against New Zealand. But no better way to get his name back in the hat straight away at the start of the year than with two centuries, including that big one against Yorkshire, um, and yeah, good finish too from uh, Yorkshire. To um, they had 213 to get in about 60 overs and. Got there 10 overs early. So, yeah, David Milan, there and thereabouts. I mean, to think where his his stocks were after, say, the Adelaide Test match when he had a couple of half centuries, a a couple of big partnerships with Joe Root to to keep things broadly together for England with the bat, only for it to to fall away as badly as it did by the end of the series when, in all, you know, he never should have played that Hobart Test match once he's... um, you know, wife was giving birth. He should have been let to go home, really, but such are the vagaries of being an international cricketer that once you're in the match, you're in the match. So, yeah, well played him. And yeah, you're right about Sean Massoud. He made 239. He didn't play in the Test series that we were covering recently. He's going to make the better part of a couple of thousand runs if he plays the whole season, I reckon. Um, so might Marcus Harris, by the way, because um, they're both outstanding openers and both look. A cut above their respective divisions. Um, and also in Division 2, we had Marnus Labashane bowling bounces at James Pattinson. I'm not sure if you caught this, <laughs> Jeff, <laughs> I but, did see a but, bit of but that. But Marnus having bowled seam up for, was it one over when they were trying to get um, a bit of a reverse swing out of him? Uh, would have mm. been, was it at Lahore or Karachi where they gave Marnus an over bowling seam up? It might have Karachi. been at Karachi, I reckon. Yeah, they... Those those um, Some of those uh, sessions blend into just one long session, don't they? One long day. Yeah,
1: the whole – it was a 15-day test
0: match, I yeah, feel. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But no, Marnus, um, yeah, bowling, bounces at James Pattinson and um, then getting two wickets, both caught behind – one caught and bowled, one caught behind – uh, with this team up, including Ben Duckett, who made 122 and 95, you know, and they're thinking about who might feature in that England test team over the next couple of years. I I wouldn't rule out Duckett, who was a bit of a prodigy when he was making his way uh, at North Ants all those years ago. Um, but yeah, Pado relatively ineffective, just two wickets, went at like five and over as well. So having made his international retirement, uh, well, I guess it was around October last year The working assumption Was that he would Come to England And just dominate For knots But hasn't quite Started out that way So yes One to watch Through the season Another one to watch Through the season Jeff is going to be The progress of Ollie Pope Speaking of prodigies I mean his record at the Oval is extraordinary. He finished last season with an average at the Oval of 99.94, would you believe? But yes, another century there at his home ground uh, against Hampshire, who they beat by an innings, which is a massive effort uh, for Surrey to go to the top of the table. I think most people assume that Hampshire are the number one team in the country right now. So yes, uh, Jamie Overton did as his twin did and was in the wickets in, in both innings. And and Surrey top of the pops, and yeah, Ollie Pope in the runs, one hundred and twenty-seven to start his campaign.
1: Yeah, the old um, Ollie Pope average at the Oval thing just uh, just keeps trucking along, doesn't it? But then every time he comes up for England, it doesn't go so well. So that's their problem. He's he's clearly the next best player in the country, like the next best in yeah yeah know, the one the one who should be doing things in the test team, is just not doing things in the test team.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And he's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't, isn't it? If he makes runs at the Oval, it's like, oh, well, another yeah. Ollie Pope 100 at the Oval. And if he doesn't, it's like, wow, well, there must be a big problem yeah. with his game at the moment. But yeah, by all reports, um, from a technical perspective, he's um, he's not making that pronounced back and across movement that seemed to get him in trouble in Australia. So yes, uh, let, let's hope that there is a, a big season ahead for a player who is surely ready for the next step at international level now that they're going to be gutting the Test team. And and last but not least, we mentioned Shah Massoud's um, big runs for Derbyshire. How about in that same game, following on, Sussex made 513 for three, with Tom Haynes making 243, Chiteshwa Bajara on debut for Sussex, making an unbeaten 201. They are the first pair to score double tonnes in the same innings Mm -hmm. following on ever. Never happened in first-class cricket. Wow. Huh.
1: Yeah, I guess... um yeah, I guess Dravid nearly had the chance but but didn't didn't go on with it. Didn't get there. That he made. And, and speaking uh, of doubles,
0: Pajaro making uh, another double, he's now got 14 yeah. of them at first class level. Nobody in the 21st century has more than that. No Asian cricketer ever has more than his 14. He overtook Kumar Sangakara who made 13 doubles through his first class career. And it was his first century for 52 innings. So just when there was a bit of a sense that he may not have the long innings in him anymore, uh, he turns out for his new club and, and, and piles off a, a match-shaving 201 not out.
1: Mm, second Div County, probably not quite the same
0: uh, level of, of scrutiny that he was facing as, as an India first drop. That's true. That's true. They put on 351 there for the for the second wicket, And one to watch for Haynes as well. He had a breakout 2021. He's already scored six first-class hundreds in, in 36 games. And, yes, the, uh, smart judges think that he'll be opening the batting for England at some point in the future. So... Watch this space for him. And that is the county championship in, yeah, about 10 minutes, which is what we'll devote to it each week on the weekly show, at least when we remember to do it. Uh, Jeff, before we wrap up part one of our weekly program this week with part two coming in a day or so, we better find time for some Nerd Pledge.
1: Let's do it. Let's not shout Nerd Pledge because it's kind of late here. Um, It's getting on a bit. Some days we can, some days we can't. The Nerd Pledge number this week, well, first I have to tell you what it is. It's a game. We play it with people who listen to the show. Uh, They sign up. On Patreon That means they support the show But instead of sending us A normal number Like a normal dollar amount They send us a specific one That relates to cricket In some way Like Harry Tonietti Has done His number is $3.45 which means it could be 345, could be 34.5, could be could be any variation on that. What does it mean, Adam? What does 345 mean? Well, obviously, when I say 345, you'll think Charlie McCartney, yes. who we talk about all the time. I could see your face lighting up. You're like, will we talk about Charlie McCartney again? We will. Making, three, making 345 in 1921? No, we won't. No one else has ever made 345. It's his number alone to this day. Probably not going to be the cap number of Trevor Holmes. I just liked thinking about Trevor Hones as cap number because he gave out so many caps, you know. So it's nice that he got a cap and then it multiplied by... It's like in in Sonic when you hit one of the things and like 50 rings come out instead of just the one ring, you know. Probably not going to be Les Jackson who was uh, cap 345 for England who played two test matches 12 years apart. I think you would love digging into the Les Jackson story one one week, Adam. I'm sorry, Les Jackson. Yeah. Uh, Well, they should be sorry because he took 100 wickets in a season 10 times and played two test matches with 12 years between them. Yeah, I'm sorry, Uh, Matt Hayden, of course.
0: That's the uh, the, the, the Will Anderson interview we did probably two years To go with it. Still <laughs> that's looks very much it.
1: Speaking of musical interludes, I did wonder then whether three, four, five was something sequential. Like, like you know, I mean, obviously, it made me think one, two, three, four, five. Everybody in the castle, come on, that's right. Which then led me to remembering that we used to we used to use the Scatman song a lot on this podcast. And a couple of years ago, Lou Bega, who. Sang Mambo number no. five, released a remix of Scatman, which was titled Scatman versus Hatman. Oh, gosh. Uh, Lou Bega was the hat man because he wore a hat in his <laughs> video clip for oh, his dear. hit single. He did Mambo spend some no. time,
0: five. Lou Baker did spend some time at, mm. at international cricket when Mambo number no. five mm. um, was the theme song for Channel 4 cricket. Mark Nicholas tells that story. I mean, better than anybody on calling the shots. And when we released the long version of the the Mark Nicholas uh, interviews, Mm -hmm. uh, I guess it would have been 18 months ago or so, um, he goes into great depth about how it came to pass that Lou Bager ended up being the the artist they went with. But uh, there's also the Mumbo's nightclub in Taunton, which is a a Mm -hmm. popular hotspot for those on the county beat. So it could be a – or maybe three, four, five. Three for five? Yeah, yeah. Well, th-
1: this is this is sort of where I was where I was getting yeah, to because yeah. obviously when I thought sequence, the first thing I thought was member number five because as you do, and as someone who's probably learned a bit more about Bagger over the years than than the average person, it's interesting how how like manufactured the whole thing was because he's actually German um, of partial African. Dissent. but when he wrote the song they were like this sounds like a Latin song so we're gonna sort of pretend that you're Latino <laughs> so they gave him like they gave him the sort of pencil mustache and the and the you know the white like the Panama hat and whatever and he basically kind of acted as a Cuban or whatever it was for, for a couple of years uh, while he was being the member number five guy it's also referenced in my favorite podcast which is not this one it's called imaginary advice um, and I suggest you look it up it's a creative writer Podcast, basically, one one guy who writes it. And he writes a story about an exorcist, a famous exorcist named Father David Stewart, who at one point uses Mambo number five to to fight a ghost. And and the quote from the show is this: it says that Lou Baker is one of the foremost scholars on acoustic demonology that the Vatican employs. The quote is Mambos one to three combat low level poltergeists, animal ghosts, door spirits. Mambo number four was designed for powerful, vengeful ghosts, but had to be mothballed after the spell was found to have negative side effects. Night terrors, weeping statues, some chickens started speaking Latin. Hence the creation of Mambo number five, the most sophisticated piece of sonic weaponry to be developed this side of Armageddon. No infernal creature can bear to listen to this demented, insane mind-clawing, libido-crushing nightmare. So that is imaginary advice. Go and look it up.
0: I love it. There's also, um, when, while we're on Lou Bager, there's there's a great tweet from uh, a comic called Joe Lee on Twitter. I just looked it up then from the middle of the pandemic. It, it, the tweet simply reads, Lou Bager's girlfriend Monica listening to Mumbo Number 5 for the first time and the first bit she goes, oh my God, oh my God, he's written, he's written a song about me and it's like, a little bit of Monica by my side and by the end of it she's just like desolate and crying.
1: At the end of the chorus, yeah, there, there was an interview where Lou Bega tries to explain that it was actually a progressive song about um, owning up to your mistakes and, and moving forward. I feel that he's trying to retrofit that a bit too much. <laughs> <laughs> I feel it was a product of its time. <laughs> so, anyway, if we move on from that, and if we look at, if we consider this number as three, four, five, as in three wickets for f- five runs, now that that is the same wherever you are in the world, because if it were a score worldwide you'd say 5 for 3 but if you're talking about the fall of wicket on a scorecard where they list fall of wicket separately the wicket is first so it's so yeah. 3 for 5 is still 3 wickets for 5 runs now you might remember this one adam i, I looked i i found instances of when teams had been 3 for 5 mm-hmm. one of them was ireland in their very first test innings when they were All out for 130, and then speaking of follow-ons, Kevin O'Brien made the ton following on, got them a lead, put them in the game. They didn't end up winning it, but it ended up being a close thing. But they were three for five to start that match. You would remember that one, I I assume.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right, Um, where they uh, they ran into Muhammad Amir, if I recall correctly, who was on fire at the start. And then, uh, yeah, Kevin O'Brien found a way to to get them back in the game, and Tim Mert nearly did the job. Not quite, but, yeah, a memorable week at Malahide.
1: Three for five was also England's score in Port of Spain in 1994. (laughs) They were three down for five, and they ended up getting bowled out for 46 in 19.1 overs, uh, Kenny Benjamin and Curtly Ambrose were the only bowlers used. They took nine wickets between them and there was a run out. So when people talk about England being in a really bad spot and needing a Red Bull reset and all the rest of it, I still think, hmm, bowled out by Kenny Benjamin in 19 overs. Like, yeah, you know, Marshall Garner holding, etc. but Maybe Kenny Benjamin's not not quite up there in that sort of territory.
0: Yeah, Ambrose was incredible. He bowled some playables at the start of that spell. The ball to Atherton stands out in that. There were some fairly crazy scorecards in that part of the world between England and, and the West Indies. Between yeah, between ninety four and two thousand and four, of course, you know, the two Lara epics are a part of that. But yeah, some all out fifty odds and a test match that had to get relocated. or well, that might have been a bit later. I think the relocation was 2009. There was the test match that was called off at Sabina Park. That would have been in, mm. I think, 1998, if I recall correctly. So, yeah, an eventful sort of rivalry that built up between those teams, especially when they were playing in the windies. I suppose that goes all the way back to 8990 90 with that fabulous series where England, against all the odds, won the first test. And, yeah, it was being beamed back to England for the first time on satellite television, and it was the... The dawning of a new era. So in terms
1: of uh, scores of three for five, uh, it's happened 18 times in men's and women's tests. No team has ever been five for three, as in five wickets for three runs. Hasn't happened. But three for five has happened 18 times. The lowest score anyone made from that point was the 46 for England. The highest is Sri Lanka made 367 after being three for five when Mm. Chandamal made a a tonne against India at Gaul in 2015. Did find a couple of slightly interesting things here, final words, style, though. India, in 1946, they went to Manchester. They were three for five, and they ended up 142 for nine and hung on for a draw against England. Then they came back in 1952 at Manchester. Again, they were three for five. Six years later, they didn't hang on for a draw. They got bowled <laughs> out for 58. And then... In the same series at the Oval, they were three for five again and got pulled out for 92 and got wow. saved by rain. So three times in, in six years India were three for five. And and then the best three for five I found was this one. This is, this is Pakistan at the Oval in 1967. They're out cheaply the first time around. They trail by 244 on the first innings. In the second dig, they're three for five. So they're absolutely screwed. Uh, when Asif Iqbal comes in to bat, they're 7 for 53 and soon after that they're 8 for 65. So he's batting at number 9. From the point that he comes in, he makes 146 of the next 202 runs. Uh, batting with Intercarb Alarm, who's the, the leg spinner who became the team manager later. Asif well, hit 21 fours and two sixes, meaning he got 116 of his runs in boundaries out of his 146. <laughs> they ended up making 255 and even getting a lead. Um, not much of one, but they did get a lead, which was, which was something from where they were, you know, that far behind the game. Uh, and if you can put an asterisk on it, it was at that point the highest score by a number nine because Clem Hill did make 160 at number nine, but he was shuffled down the order from when he was when he was ill, right. so he wasn't a real nine. But so it was the highest score by a proper nine, and there've okay. only been two higher scores since from a number nine, which is uh, Ian Smith and Stuart Broad, I think, are the two who've who've gone past that. So Asif Iqbal coming in. At seven for 53 and then just peeling off 146 for fun is one of the best scorecards I've seen. Nobody else made a run until the number nine and the number 10
0: got together and did some damage. Brilliant. I prefer that to the false nine in Clem Hill in in football terms. Very good. Uh, Okay, three for five. Three, four, five. Harry Tognetti, let Jeff know how he went. You can do so by hitting us up on Patreon in the usual way. On Discord as well, I I, I don't mention enough that 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 is perhaps the nicest corner of the internet, our Discord channel. If you're a patron, you already know that. If you're a patron and haven't jumped on, let us know. If you've had any problems in accessing the platform, drop us a message and we can fix that very easily as in just contact us on on Patreon and we'll send you a link and it should be fairly straightforward and if you're not a patron and want to get involved patreon.com forward slash the final word we will look forward to considering your number and telling your tale on Nerd Pledge be it on the weekly show or on Storytime which will be back with Jeff and me this weekend we have a revisit special coming up because uh, we've been uh, away for a little while doing the show separately so we've got to gather our thoughts and go through a bunch of numbers that we didn't quite get right but it does mean If you are a new Pledger, you get a couple of swings. You can send us through a number without a clue. We can try and work out your story. If we're right, so be it. If we're not, we'll we'll address it for a second time or a third time or a fourth time or whatever it takes. Uh, Jeff, uh, that is the end of part one. Of the final word today uh, And as I mentioned before um, The the second part will be with Lawrence Booth The Wisdom Almanac editor It'll drop at 10.30pm UK time on Wednesday But yes, it's unusual we're splitting the ep in this way But, but such is the way with the embargoes and all the rest of it And uh, yeah, we've already been gibbering on for, for well over an hour now It feels like the right time to end our conversation
1: I think so um, I think we've 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 limbered up We've exercised the podcast muscles We'll be better for the run um, as, as we come back on the weekend and, and then into next week, and, and on, on and on it goes.
0: All right, we'll, uh, we'll speak to you on part two of the Final Word Weekly show tomorrow. Until then, this has been The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lynn. See ya.
1: I had to go